Hi, I'm Thomas Rongen. Welcome to Men Marking. We're asking, where's the talking lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Yeah, I I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking. Today we're speaking to Thomas Rongen. I certainly can. Uh, Thomas Rongen, born and raised in downtown Amsterdam. Uh, spent my first uh, 21 years there. Uh, graduated from uh, the government of uh, central sports uh, intelligence. There's three of them in, in the country that prepared me well for my not only my playing career, but my coaching career, came to the United States uh, through Rinus Meagles, uh, the iconic Dutch legendary coach, obviously, of total football and Ajax and, and uh, Barcelona, played with my childhood hero uh, and idol, Johan Croy, for two years uh, for the Los Angeles Aztecs and the Washington Diplomats. Uh, spent some time in Fort Lauderdale, played for the Strikers, where Gordon Banks had just left, but Brian Kitt... Uh, was part of that team, Gerd Mueller, who was part of that team still at that time, uh, the leading goal scorer in, in World Cup history. Uh, the franchise got moved to Minneapolis, so I spent two years there. Played indoors in Chicago, that's not a mid-80s when the NESL folded. And then became a youth coach, a high school coach, eventually a, a college, university coach. And I worked my way into MLS in its first year in 1996 with the Tampa Bay Mutiny. Um, one coach of the year my first year uh, spent some time with the new england revolution thereafter won a championship with dc united in 1999 um, with the core group of the u.s national team with eddie pope and, and jeff agus uh, two brilliant bolivian players and marco echeverry and jaime moreno uh, was the first coach for chivas usa in in the early 2000s and uh, went to a senior World Cup as an assistant coach in France in 1998, uh, assistant coach of our Olympic team, and I was the head coach of um, four under 21 cycles. I went to three World Cups, starting with the two of three World Cup that put Clint Dempsey uh, on the map, so to speak. Fast forward to 2007 with Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore. Uh, became the chief scout for the U.S. Uh, men's national team and then reinvented myself. And I'm now a, a pundit, a analyst for being Sports USA and, and CBS uh, Sports as well. So my, uh, my trade right now is doing something that everybody would love to do as a fan and get paid for it. And uh, here we are, in my early 60s and, and enjoying every... Uh, Every moment of it. As is the usual custom, I am joined by Ryan Pulford and the main man, Anthony Olsen. I was going to give you a Aww. middle name then, but uh, all right, well, you're also the main man. Thank you. Middle name. Middle name's Edward, if you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> How's that funny? How is that funny? Just <laughs> don't care. <laughs> Anthony Edward Olsen. Yeah. I tip my cap to you, yeah. Squire. Yeah. Um, how are we, chaps? Yeah, very well. Very well. It's, it's a bit of an Indian summer, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. It's just randomly warm. 
Yeah, yeah well, outside. somebody said to me in the in the bakery yesterday. They said oh, beyond bakery. Yeah, the bakery, yeah. and they said um, apparently we're having a uh, apparently we're having a heat wave. Oh, what would you want? Yeah. And I said, "It's Christmas in about three weeks." <laughs> no, and I said, "All right, okay." Top, <laughs> top bakery chat. Yeah, it's a standard like English yeah. bakery chat. I was like, "Can I just have my pies?" And just want to go. Thank you very much, uh, Edward. How are we? Oh God, we haven't told you that now. Well, it is your name? It is. Yeah, it was going to be my actual name, uh, which would be weird. Eddie. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm really good. Uh, sunflowers are on for sunflower update. One of them's kind of on the way out, but we've got more. There's more. Oh, more have come. Absolutely more. Hopefully. Yeah. Okay. So well, you're going to need to provide photographic updates for this for the yeah. for the I Twitter. Took, I took some this morning, so they'll be up. Yeah. Fantastic. Before we get on with the episode today, we just want to point you in the direction of our Patreon, which we have launched recently. For just two ninety nine a month, you can get loads of extra, extra, extra content. It is extra. Uh, currently up there, we have our four prediction shows. Premier League, Championship, League One and League Two. And the opening weekend of the season has probably already made us look stupid. But there you go. I don't know. I think mine went all right. Mine went... Uh, League Two went well. How how How's Wigan's sort of preparations getting on right? Um, they've lost a few. They've signed a few. I think John Sheridan's come in as gaffer. Yeah. How's... Paul Mullen got his goal on his way to... He did. He uh, did. ...being top goal scorer. Anything for Jordan Slim? He, he didn't. Slim. He, he didn't. He didn't play. <laughs> He's just warming up to the yeah, season, yeah. isn't he? Um, just warming up. It's kind of a slow burner, isn't it? Oh, there you go. Oh. Anyway, moving past that, and we've also got interviews with Mike Jones and Nottingham Forest midfielder Joe Lolly are on there as well. So yeah, go and get involved, and part of the proceeds of that will be donated to charity. More of which will be released on our Twitter this week. And we've also announced this weekend that we are partnering up with the always excellent Kelly Wells. She will be providing some written content for us via our blog. Yep. The first of which is up there now, which is about emotional appointments in football. Definitely go and give that a read, particularly if you are a United or Chelsea fan. It's kind of reference to Solskjaer and Lampard. So yeah, well worth giving that a read. But we're going to move on. Our guest today is Thomas Rongan. For anybody who knows who Thomas Rongan is, uh, I'm sure you're very excited to hear from him. He's, he's in some circles, and I'd certainly say in, in, in this circle, a, a legend of the game. He's obviously a, a famous Dutch man. Yeah, he is, yeah. He's a, very, he's a famous Dutch man. So we're going to go very basic with this and ask, what is your favourite Dutch player of all time? And Ryan, I'm going to go to you first for, for your yeah. answer. It's a tricky one because I think growing up, the Dutch squad always lit up the World Cups and the Euros, didn't they? When they qualified with the Roman shirts, they were attacking football. So it's been many down the years. Being a, like a teenager, I used to love watching Wesley Snyder when he first came through mm. and he was just quality, absolutely quality. So I'd probably go for him, although Robin is in a similar bracket. Not um, want to pick anyone with hair? No, no. no. Aerodynamic. Trying to do something funny in the corner. Um, yeah, Standard. I'd, I'd, go for, I'd go for Snyder, to be fair, but there's, there's many, many Dutch players down the years. Lovely. And? Bergkamp. Bergkamp. Lovely, oh, isn't he? Never heard Saucy. of him. Lovely. He was a lovely player. Didn't really go abroad and play because he was, I think, scared of flying. He did not like flying. Um, which I always found quite funny. Uh, and I just it's a phobia that probably shouldn't have for that no no, no, I, I, no I just he just rocked up at Highbury and just scored loads of goals and, and anyone listening out there and I think there might be one if anyone thinks that Nicholas Davizas 10 was a fluke they can absolutely get in the bin it was so I was meant. actually going to ask that. Do you yeah. do, 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 do so many fluke? Yeah, no yeah. Chance. Sharples has proved it time after time. Uh, yeah. no. time after time. Get a bin. 
Yeah, get mm. in the bin. He's a genius. Um, my favourite Dutch player of all time is 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 Raphael van der Vaart. I was so close to saying, I guess. You know what, like, is that because he kind of mirrors your own amateur football career? Oh, yeah, definitely. Is that why? Zero tracking back was going on. <laughs> it was all... I'm just going to stand in the exciting part of the pitch <laughs> and wait until you give me the ball. Yeah. And he was always one of them. You felt like, he turns up in terrible nick with a pre-season. <laughs> Every time I saw him. But he's a superb footballer. And we got a few years of him at Tottenham. Yeah, and it good. was under that Harry Redknapp team where Redknapp it was just like, right, nobody do, do any defending today. <laughs> I thought it was either then. <laughs> get the ball to Reffa, get it forward. And uh, kick it in a goal as many times as you can. <laughs> that was what he used to do every when week. When did he turn into Michael Caine? <laughs> oh, oh, no, I bury any more bet bears. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was that was my Raphael van der Vaart. I was actually watching some kind of Premier League years thing the other day with van der Vaart, and it was just great to see. He used to do a really... first James class, wasn't he? I feel like every time I watched him, he used to do a really good line in arriving just into the box, taking the ball on the chest and kind of volleying it across his body into the other corner. I feel like that was a special move. Uh, very enjoyable footballer. Yeah. Very Tottenham as well. Mm. Um, so moving on then to, to Thomas Rongan, who, who, you know, I refer to both of you as the main man at the beginning of this show. Uh, Thomas Rongan certainly is the main man, yeah. particularly today, as he is our guest. Mm. And Ant, you're going to tell us and you're going to tell all the listeners... Why, Why did we want to speak to Thomas Rangan? Yeah, um, I think we're kind of a little bit obsessed with him. A little bit. A little bit, I think you are. Oh, I love the man. Uh, you went to see that film on your own, didn't you? Oh, no yeah. No one was in the cinema, really. There was two other guys two in the people. cinema. We'll talk about this after the <laughs> yeah, episode, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, but if anyone's seen the documentary, that kind of story just... It just needs explaining again and again, and I think as many people need to watch it. Yeah. I think the film does that brilliantly. And he just, everything that he went through and still to, to do it. And it's not at a top level, but he was performing at a top level mm. if you consider what that team was like. It's unbelievable how to get that out of players, how to get that out of himself. Mm. And, and uh, it's just, and so that's why we wanted to speak to him. He's yeah. just such an interesting character. Oh, his well. life, his football life, out, even just take, even if you just take the next goal wins thing out of it, yeah. if you just take the American Smooth thing out of it, his football and CV is just bananas it's absolutely bananas and he talks us through a lot of that in, in great detail in the yeah. interview Ryan we always have a theme do you want to tell the listeners and, and Edward uh, today's theme yeah so the theme this week is the purity of football yeah yeah. simple concise yeah. and I think represents exactly what this interview is all about to it be does. completely honest with you um, there's some ups and some, some downs but I think the thing that kind of links all the way through it is his, his love of football and yeah. I think we, as fans, and particularly now, I think we forget what football does for us. Yeah, what yeah, it means. So. It was, I mean, he's as we've said, he's he's done a lot, he's achieved a lot as a player, as a as a coach. But his enthusiasm during that interview, just to talk <laughs> about football to, to a couple of guys he's never met in his life, yeah. it was just like you got excited speaking to him. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy just wants you could talk to him all night. He was just great value. Oh, he's amazing. And it's when like. You know, you hear a story about someone or you read something about someone and you either meet them or you speak to them in real life and you hope what you've heard and read represents what they're like and yeah. he just epitomised what he was in the documentary. So, yeah, super value. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. So, that's enough of us and uh, we'll hand you over to, to Thomas Rongan and uh, we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. As as you touched on there, your, your early career, I think you you 
He played for about seven years and it was the third team of Dutch football. Yes, I, I, my first club was Blue White, Blauw Wit. Uh, that was my neighborhood club. Then I went to AFC, which is Amsterdam uh, Football Club, which is probably very close. Not probably, it has a very close connection with 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 Ajax. I had an opportunity to uh, uh, to sign a contract, but I wasn't old enough. I hated my parents for many years. Now I look <laughs> back. Now I look back, and I'm I'm glad I was an okay player, but but probably would have never been a a regular for the first team. So I'm I'm actually pleased that my parents refused to sign a contract that I every kid in in the Netherlands or maybe the world wanted to sign for uh, was Ajax, uh, obviously. Um, but it allowed me to finish my studies. It allowed me to um, spend actually a trip with the Dutch Olympic team uh, in the U.S. in '78. I fell in love with the country. I was going to travel actually uh, after I was done with my studies. I'd saved some money, and literally a month before I would travel to uh, the United States, which was late '78, maybe January of 1979, I get a call out of the blue by Renus Migels, and he said, "I've heard you're a pretty good player." Uh, I got a thousand dollars per month. You got to share a car with a, another player and share an apartment. And you need to let me know if you want to come, yes or no. Here we are, forty years plus later. Um, I never returned. I, I go back to see my family and friends, obviously. But America has become my my second home. Maybe my my, my first home. I've, I've got two passports, both Dutch and 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 U.S. And and I was very very fortunate to be part of a cycle with World Cup stars playing against George Best, playing with Jan Cruyff, against Beckenbauer, uh, you know, Trevor Francis, uh, the list goes on and on of superstars, superstars of that era, the sort of Messi's and Ronaldo's ended up playing in, in the United States. And, and for me as a young player, because most of them were in their late 20s or early 30s, um, to make some money and, and to have another experience. I was a very, very young player. I came here at age 21, um, and and I was fortunate to be touched by people that that allowed me to, you know, structure my own uh, philosophy on how the game needed to be played, shaped by obviously Renus Migos and Johan Cruyff, and I applied those in the four MLS teams I coached, the under 21s when I went to World Cups, the 4-3-3 attacking dominant football. Um, so it's been a, it's been an interesting an interesting ride, starting with my uh, my first clip, as I said, Blau White, and and ending up with uh, with playing with with Cruyff and uh, Wim Surbier and Wim Janssen, other uh, great players for the '74 World Cup team that the Dutch had, and I was very fortunate uh, to be able to stay in this country and become part of the resurgence of soccer when the NESL collapsed in the mid '80s. And I'm really happy I, I stayed. Most international players went back to their respective countries. And I wanted to give back something to this, this country. I taught languages at Berlitz. Uh, I, I was a youth coach because there was no professional soccer. I became a high school and college coach to make um, a living. And then I, I ended up, as I said again, um, in MLS in its first year in 1996. And fast forward to... The senior world world cup olympics 320 world cups uh, a chief scout i've been very very fortunate um to come from this small eclectic creative environment in amsterdam and end up in in fort lauderdale uh, florida where i live uh, uh, currently
And that's an amazing story. And, and just to touch on how you, you first arrived in the US, what, what was it like in terms of culture and, and being such a young person and playing with your idols? How did you adapt at the time, both on and off the pitch? Very, very naturally. Um, and I think that, that, that has allowed me to be part of uh, a group of people in this country that um, are able to dissect and analyze the game and, and, and being regarded as, as um, you know, somebody that, that, that knows the game. Uh, the Dutch are, are inventive, creative. Uh, we are natural in our in our approach, you know, as, as our society is very open and, and, and democratic. Um, and I approached those adventures uh, uh, in a tough environment with a, a disciplined coach in, in Rinders Meagles, but a brilliant mind in, in putting a team together and be successful. Uh, hanging out with uh, my idol, Johan Cruyff, living with the family for about four months in, in, in D.C. when I became part of uh, the family and uh, saw Jordi Cruyff play his first youth game when he was six years old. Um, so it, it's, it was a very unique experience. And, and, and yes, every game I pinched myself. You know, Thomas, you're, coach, you're, you're marking uh, George Best on corners. Uh, Thomas, you got to track Beckenbauer when he comes out of the back. These were all heroes that I, I, I've seen and I was playing against them um, and I wasn't a great player, but as Cruyff said the first time he met me after about 10 minutes in our first training session, he walked over to Thomas, you're a pretty decent player, not a great player, far from it, but you have a place in this team if you're disciplined, if you're a hard worker, if you do the dirty work, win your tackles, play simple, find me, <laughs> and, after, <laughs> and after you find me, basically stand still. So I... I I, I took that too hard. I was always the fittest player on, on our team. I, I was tactically astute. I was a good student of the game, which helped me uh, to get my licenses. I had my B license in the Netherlands already, but I, I took my my licenses while I was still playing here in my 20s, encouraged by by Johan Cruyff, because Johan said at one point, and Thomas, I, I, I think you could make a, a good coach. I go, why? He said, well, most mediocre players make good coaches because you need to be a student of the game because things don't come naturally. And that was hard, but but honest, and and, and I learned a lot uh, uh, from that along the lines. But dealing with those players and those those levels, it was different. There was no media scrutiny, really. There was no cell phones. Uh, we 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 could have a little bit of fun uh, on on the road after games without having to worry about things. So the connections between players uh, was easier and 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 more. As I said again, natural that you would see now where, where people literally are getting into dark limos and going to places where nobody uh, nobody knows where they are. So the interaction was actually healthy. It was awesome. I learned a lot. Uh, big players were, had open minds. I mean, my roommate was uh, Gerd Mueller one year, uh, Keith Weller. Wow. Keith Weller, who scored the goal of the uh, the decade one, one time in England, Brian Kidd. Um, you know, I was just Teofio Cubias, who played in four World Cups for Peru. You know, probably the best player ever produced. Ricardo Villa, that, that went with Ozzy Ardiles to, uh, to England, uh, was my yeah. roommate. So I was shaped by, by a lot of different uh, generations uh, um, over the years that I was here. And, and, and I learned a lot and, and it was one hell of a ride. 
What What was your family and friends' reaction back home when you made that decision to move to the states, and and then all of a sudden you may be ringing home every week, letting them know stories of Cruyff and and Best and Beckenbauer. They must have been really proud, but obviously a bit anxious when you first made the move. Yes, yes, without a doubt. You know, at, at a young age, but but I had prepared them properly. I, I'd safe. They knew I wanted to get a backpack, and 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 after I was done with my studies to go to the United States, I remember we played in San Diego against uh, in '78 uh, in about October, November. We had like a three-week tour here. We played the same team, which was their their Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team in San Diego, San Francisco, St. Louis, uh, and New York, and just flying over the country and, and, and seeing this, this immense, these, these basically 52 different countries, because uh, you go from California to Texas, it's, it's different. You fly over the, the Grand Canyon, it's, it's just uh, very impressive. And, and uh, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of uh, things I don't particularly care for in this country. Uh, but there's a lot of things, more things that I do care for in this country. And that's the beauty of this country, both with humans, but the geography and, and some of the new architecture that you, that you see is, is absolutely stunning and amazing. And my parents were indeed very proud. Uh, my mom, up till this day, she's still alive, uh, still misses me. Uh, so do I. Uh, but, 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 but when I first went back, which was after two years, and I walked into the living room. My dad had like like two books, and I go, "What are those?" And he opened it up, and he had saved every article that was written about me, and he had pasted them, you know, in pages and pages, and talk about being proud and and showing it oh, to my wow. showing it to my friends and things like that. That's when it hit home that that I did make an impact uh, on my surroundings, uh, my family, and 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 some of my friends because that was a dream come true for for not too many people. Uh, in my case, it, it did happen. So that was uh, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, that, that's a really nice story to hear. And um, we have a lot of former footballers on, on our podcast and they sort of discuss transitioning outside of playing. And a lot of them often feel lost because they, they've almost lost their, their purpose and what they were, the buzz and what they were good at. You seem to know early on that you wanted to coach. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I... I, I, I I have a master's. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. Uh, and, and the CEOs is, as I said again, Central Institute, sorry, I said intellectual, but Central Institute of Education of Sports Leaders. It's a four-year uh, master's degree. After two years, you specify in two sports. Obviously, soccer was one of them. At the end of uh, the third year, uh, you do a practical part. So I spent uh, six months uh, working um for various clubs where I had to report back uh, with things in, in regard to my, my study. And, and I finished off with spending six months uh, teaching uh, people in, in jail and, and, and was an athletic uh, uh, teacher, basically, teaching different sports. Um, but from an early age, I, wanted, I knew I was going to be an educator. And, and, and when I finally was able to touch my idols and learn from my idols, Yes, it was a very, not an easy transition, but I knew at a very early age, encouraged by Johan Cruyff, uh, that, I, that I would want to become a, a, a coach. I never, never in my life, you know, <laughs> had, had uh, anticipated that I would be able to coach for, for many years on the highest level and, and, and go to World Cups and develop players like Michael Brantley and, 
and Josie Altador and Clint Dempsey, the list goes on of, 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 of players that came through our system that I helped a little bit to continue their, their, their pathway to our Olympic team and eventually our senior team. And I'm very proud of a look at our senior team you know, over the last 20 years. There's quite a few players I know benefited from, uh, from my coaching and, and their experiences um, in qualifying and in World Cups and in tours that we had throughout the world to get the best competition we, we, we could. So, um, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing that I was able to transition that easily. Very fortunate at a young age that somebody took a flyer on me in 1996 as an unknown coach, uh, only coach college, a semi-pro for two years uh, as a player and a coach for a resurrection of a league here that was called the APSL. Uh, and I did that for the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And there was quite a few uh, coaches out there with a lot more experience. But but I was very glad that uh, the president at the Tampa Bay Mutiny in 1996 uh, picked me to uh, guide that team uh, to not only being the best team in the league, most goals scored at El Pibe, Valderrama with his big hair, at Roy Lasseter scoring 28 goals. That record stood for uh, 24 years, broken finally two years ago by uh, Martinez. Martinez, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been one one hell of a ride. Uh, when I when I stepped on the plane, I I never thought I would be here. 40 years later and being entrenched still in the beautiful game and now sharing my knowledge, hopefully uh, on, on TV to our, our viewers. Yeah. And, and uh, as you say, it's a, it's a long list of, of clubs you've had success at. And my, my dad is, he, he loves football and he's, he's always loved Dutch football because he, he grew up in, in that era. He's 70 years old. He remembers the great Dutch sides of the 70s. And the Dutch always seem to be very tactically astute uh, and very technical as well. H how did you find coaching America? Because you always find different continents have different styles. And America seems to be quite pure. But you touched on street football earlier, which I think is quite true for Europe. Yeah. Uh, America maybe lacks in, in some elements. Yeah, very interesting. So my, 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 my first stint with the... Uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Soccer Federation was in 202 when Bruce Arena was the head coach and Nate Me as the under-20 coach. My whole team in the 203 World Cup, which was in the United Emirates, where, by the way, we we, we beat Paraguay, we beat South America, South uh, Korea, we got out of group play, we beat Ivory Coast, and we lost in, in overtime, or actually extra time, against Argentina, up one nothing. Eddie Johnson, by the way, who played in the EPL uh, for a year or two, on a breakaway, 1v1 to go to 2 nothing and probably seal the game. And a Macherano just out of nowhere gets to 1-1 in the 94th minute. And they get a dodgy penalty um, to go on. But that team was predominantly college players. I had no pros on that team. So so just imagine I got guys from Stanford, Wake Forest. I got guys that had uh, IQs uh, that, that you couldn't match, so to speak. So from a pure intellectual standpoint they were very smart players but from a streetwise standpoint we had a lot to learn and and i made a vow to myself after two camps um that i needed not only to continue to hone their skills skill set technically tactically physically i wasn't too worried about uh, obviously um 
because that to me was not a priority at age 18 or, or 19. Uh, but it was also the psychological part. It was it was the, the part where I felt we were where we were naive. Uh, when I explained to them how I grew up in street soccer, they all looked at me uh, because they <laughs> they go to Stanford, and if you look at look at Stanford, that facility is better than most most EPL teams in the world. Um, parents were more concerned about a scholarship than their kids going pro. Uh, so I, I would go. The cycles are every two years. I would take him to Buenos Aires and, and go to a Boca River game in the Bombanera. And I'm telling you, these guys were shitting themselves. I would play <laughs> I would play Argentina and Brazil at AFTA. That's the, the training site for the Argentinian national team. And I would ask the opposing coach, be nasty. Nasty mean grab your fucking balls, pinch uh, nipples and things like that. And yeah. I would get responses from players during the match looking at me, go, Coach, you just you just pinched my nipple, you know. I go <laughs> So there were there, along the line there were these these teaching lessons. The first real street baller I I, I I came across was Clint Dempsey. And you can see the environments, the socioeconomic um, influences where players come from. You go talk about Stanford is upper winter, upper middle class white, you know, nice house, picket fence, a dog. Most of the players were more concerned about their girlfriends than actually, you know, winning games because they didn't know any better. And, and I couldn't blame the players. Um, I would take them every two years uh, to Europe. And we would play in Amsterdam. And after the last game against Ajax, I would say, guys, bus leaves tomorrow at 10 a.m. And I would walk out and I could hear, oh, my God, no, no curfew. And, you know, at 2 a.m., I got a few guys knocking on my door. I go, coach, they stole, stole my wallet. Uh, coach, look at this. Somebody hit me. I go, well, where, where did you guys go? Uh, I said, come on, guys. We went to the red light district. I said, okay, what happened? Well, I mean, I was looking at this girl, uh, and all of a sudden somebody knocked me on my ass. I said, yeah, you ever heard of a pimp? That's a pimp. And if you, <laughs> you look at a girl for 10 seconds, you either go in or you keep walking. If you stay there for a minute, you're taking business away. So, yeah, the guy's going to kick your ass. So I still get players now that, that talk about those trips that say, I, I get it, coach. I, thanks. You know, I, I was too naive. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I take them to a, to Brazil and, and to a favela and see where their opponents grow up in. And, and it's the only way out. Uh, and, and slowly trying to create a soccer culture, which we will never really get in this country. It's still uh, artifi- uh, fairly artificial. Um, and, and as I said again, at the end of the day, initially I blamed the players for being naive and not wanting to watch games. I go, guys, come on, there's a great game on in Europe. Oh, Coach Marauder, you know, do this or that. They weren't junkies. They weren't desperate. Um, but over time, we, we changed that. I look at the last under-20 team, our last under-17 team that played in the World Cup, all pros. And you know what? Most of them in Europe right now. Look at Gio Reyna, look at uh, Christian Pulisic at Chelsea right now. Those are guys that all, you know, at one point in time played for our 20s and 17s, but not when I had the reins of, uh, of, 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 uh, of those teams. My last World Cup team, which was Egypt 209, probably half the team was in, 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 uh, in MLS at that time, but I still had college players on, on that, that, uh, that respective team. And they played three months out of the year because they're student athletes. I mean, who can get better in four years in college playing three months, condensed schedule, 20 games, 
There's no time to practice, really. It's all regeneration. So the system is still, to a certain extent, broken. And I'm really happy right now that MLS uh, youth development is paying dividends. Look at Weston McKinney. Look at Zach Steffen. Look at, uh, uh, as I said, Gio Reyna. Look at Josh Sargent. All guys that came through M- most through MLS Academy. So we've, we've made yeah. great strides from 202 when I first took a team of naive uh white got upper middle class guys basically to more of a melting pot that the u.s is you know um, african-americans athletic guys uh, white guys that are smart in the back that can are good passers uh, technical players like a gio reina midfield and that's that's what what our soccer uh, structure eventually should look like just what this country is is, is the makeup of this country not just geographically but more so from a socio-economic background. I I completely agree. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Thomas. Um, There's a lot that's good about the collegiate system, but obviously it preferences those who are from a background that can either afford to go or get a scholarship based on uh, the studies. And that does lead me to sort of my last question, which is, do you think that system holds the US back? Because as you touched on, you've got Tyler Adams and... Weston McKenney, Rayner, uh, Pulisic, who, who were only at the level they're at now because they played at a much younger age. Even if you look at Ajax's team that got nearly got to the Champions League final and you had Van der Beek and De Ligt who, who were playing at 17, 18, sometimes even captain in the team. Yeah, There's a yeah. lot to be said for, for making boys into men at that age. Absolutely. You're absolutely, absolutely right. And, and I mean, let's be real honest pay to play is is 90 percent of the players in america pay to play which means there's a segment of the population which are the hispanics and the 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 african-americans in bigger cities that still play basketball um that can't afford to pay that can't afford to play for a state team and, and buy jerseys and 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 travel throughout the country so they can be seen by college coaches so we're still missing uh, a large chunk of very talented players that play in elite. I mean, I said to Clint Dempsey, Clint, where did you pick all of this up? He's from Nacogdoches, Texas. He said, well, my parents couldn't drive me um, to a to a big club like FC Dallas, he said, because they both worked. Um, but my older brother would take me to these illegal leagues on Saturday and Sunday where I would play against men, mostly uh, migraine workers, mostly Mexicans. And he said, I picked up shit. If I dribbled too much, that Mexican guy that was five years older just whacked me a few times. And and basically through trial and error, I figured it out that I knew how to take care of myself as well and dish it out. Um, so very interesting to see again uh, how that shapes certain players and the pay for play, uh, which thank God we got now, what, 20 odd MLS teams. We got the USL Championship, which now has... 20 plus teams all now a structure underneath for players don't have to play our scouting has become better but still can get better we're still not getting in areas where i think uh, we're missing talents because this that's another thing geographically this country is i'll bet you there's a there's three or four unbelievable 12 year olds in somewhere in nebraska but we don't see these they, they don't appear on the map um you know Germany, that's, everybody says, well, why can't we do Dutch reboot? Or why can't we do like Iceland? Germany goes, Germany is, Texas is bigger than Germany. 
and we have 52 states. Yeah. The Netherlands goes into, into Florida one-eighth, you know, the Netherlands. Uh, Iceland, one-twentieth. Uh, so in terms of coaching education, which we are behind, and player development, we'll continue to be behind as well. And we have our challenges are, are not just, you know, social economically, but our challenge also is, is our geography is against us. If you put in place what Germany does, did, in all the respective schools throughout the country and with all the different states or little providences, whatever they have, uh, it's it's going to cost $2.2 billion to do that in every state throughout the United States. And and again, guys, uh, Holland goes one-eighth into Florida. So in, in essence, you need to up it by four or five more people, two or three more facilities, seven or eight more scouts. You're talking about, as I said again, uh, a an investment of 2.2 billion and at the end of the day it's really the owners is now in the professional teams provide an environment where these guys can get better where they don't have to worry about having to pay for uh, you know their 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 jerseys or or, or anything else for that uh, for that matter and we're getting better and and mls and the usl are taking a real uh, a real strong uh, charge in saying hey it's our our responsibility to do it right and more and more money is going towards the academies, which is which is nice to see. You um you first came to to my attention um as part of the uh, next goal wins film, uh -huh. um which I I actually saw almost completely by chance. I went to there was a cinema at the end of my road um when I was in university, and I on a Monday night they used to show old films. Um, and it was Pulp Fiction that was on that evening. So I, I walked down to the cinema and I went and went to buy a ticket. They told me that it was sold out. There wasn't any seats left. So I said, all right, well, what else is on? And they said, oh, there's this film called Next Goal Wins on. And I oh said, all right. I, That's crazy. I, I would have picked, picked Pulp Fiction too, by the way. <laughs> and I said, I said, what's it about? And they said, it's a football film. I said, all right, then go on. I'll have a ticket for that. And there was literally me. And it was like a Monday night at like nine o'clock. So it was. It, there was me and maybe a couple of other people in in the screen. It was quite a small screen, and it. I, I have to say, I, I funnily enough, my, my dad's a big film goer, and I texted him that evening about it, and he'd seen it the same day in a different cinema. Wow! And and, and he 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 said, I can't believe you've seen that film the same day as me. And in, in my honest opinion, it is the best football film ever made, like ever yes. made. And and I and I think it's just. It encapsulates everything that's that's good about football, like everything that's good about Thank football. Um, yeah, the, Guard, the Guardian actually wrote, uh, it should have gotten an Oscar, you know, which coming from The Guardian was pretty uh, pretty cool, but the response has been, like, really unbelievable. Uh, and thanks for... for <laughs> Thanks for not going to Pulp Fiction, but ending up in... Uh... <laughs> well, it, it, it's one of those funny sliding doors moments, really, because it's a film that... A lot of people, when I when people say, "Oh, should I watch a film?" I, oh, it's one of the films I always say, "Oh, you need, you should watch this film." And I even I tell a lot of people, I say, even if you're not a football fan, you'll enjoy it. Like it, it'll, and I think to be honest with you, I, I pretty much cry every single time I watch it, just because it's it's so good. Um, yeah. So I how did too. how did that come about then? Um, I had a very good relationship with with the top brass at US Soccer, uh, Sunil Galati and, and and Dan Flynn, and and. We've done a lot of uh, projects um, over the years, um, you know, where they valued my opinion and would send me places to either 
talk to a coach, uh, look at players. And if you're a coach of a national team, you miss the day to day, you know, you get a camp and then really for a month and a half, two, maybe three months, there's nothing else. And then you go on another trip and then eventually you get through qualifying, you go to the World Cup. So there's a lot of downtime. And I got a call literally from Sunil said, listen, do you want to go over to a, um, a territory, which is called American Samoa, just like like Puerto Rico is, it's part of the U.S., um, to help in their endeavor to um, qualify for Brazil, uh, basically more to help structure the country a little bit more and, and, and see, because that's, you know, that's what I love to do. Uh, they ended up being a head coach and, 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 and special and whatever. So he called me and he said, you know, I said to my wife, I said, where, where is this? And I've traveled all over the world. That's the only part, the only place I haven't been is is Oceania and, and, and Polynesia, basically. She said, oh, God, it's next to Fiji. I go, all right, I'm in. <laughs> and then I did some research. You know, we found out they're, they're the last team in the FIFA rankings. They lost 31 to nothing against uh, Australia. Um, had not scored a goal in the last decade. Uh, would lose... 12, 14, 20, 22, nothing. And that was the norm. And it also drove these two young guys from England that made the documentary, uh, Steve and Mike Brett, uh, who were there before me. I didn't even know there was film crews out there because they were driven by the fact, what makes these people tick? They don't get paid. They get their head handed each and every day. What is this? What's the psychology? Why do they want to come back and 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 get embarrassed again. That that draw them first. And then fast forward, they win the first game in two decades, they score a goal in the first decade in the first game against Tonga, and all of a sudden it becomes world news. And all of a sudden, both Mike and Steve looked at me and said, I think we have a movie here. We have a documentary here. You know, so that that that's how it rolled uh, a little bit. So when they first went over it wasn't with the intention to make the film that it turned out to be almost. Yeah, they, they, I don't know what they what, what form they were planning on on doing this, but they wanted to make something that would shed light on on basically the worst team in the world, but more so about what again what makes them tick. What why come back with a smile on your face knowing that you're going to get your asses kicked again? You know, I mean that, that's an incredible psyche. <laughs> I don't know, it, you know, if that's 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 normal, but but. It, it, it was, and I was amazed by, by their perseverance as well and their love and passion for the game. I lost that for a long time, and they, they taught me again to love the game because after a while, as a head coach, it's all about winning and losing, and the wins are a, a fist pump, and I'm already worried about next week's game, and the losses, the dagger in my heart started to hurt more and more, and I became cynical. I was driven by fear of failure. Uh, I didn't enjoy the, the occasions anymore, um, but I had my bl blinders on like horses and I just kept plugging away because that's what you do and try to you know, be successful, obviously. Um, so for me, it was, for me, uh, what, a, what a great trip that was for a personal and a professional standpoint. First time I coached, you know, as a head coach, a, a, a team in, in a World Cup qualifier. That's, that's nice to say. Um, so that was one thing. The challenge to turn this team around was was number two. The beauty of that region uh, was number three. I love to learn, love to learn different cultures, languages. I speak five fluently. 
the Dutch like to travel, so it, it made sense to me, and thank God I went. It, it's interesting you say that about um, about almost reaffirming your, your connection with football. I, I, that's the, the biggest takeaway I have from the film is there. It's almost like the pure essence of of what football is and like why people love it. And I, I often wonder if we've, you know, in 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 Europe and and, and it probably attains to the states as well. Almost lost that a little bit. Yeah, we have without a doubt. We we, we certainly have 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 lost have lost that. And and you know maybe maybe we get back to normal again. I mean, it's a it's a billion dollar trillion dollar industry probably worldwide. The TV rights, the sponsorships, the, 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 the players' salaries, the transfers uh, people have talked about up till now. Um, I think the true, uh, the true test is Jaden Sancho. Is, is Man United, under these kind of circumstances, are they morally willing to spend over $100 million for Jaden Sancho? If that happens, I, I've lost all faith in, in, in football. I hope we see more trade deals with a little bit of money involved or trade two players for one or whatever. That makes both teams maybe better. Um, but I'm afraid in two years we're back to the norm again where the business drives the athletic part, basically. And we'll still have phenomenal players and, and, and great games. But it's, it's different. It's different than when I went to the Ajax Stadium in the late 60s to watch Ajax because it was, it, it, it was pure. Um, now... A lot of things are artificially manufactured. And let's face it, it was pure because my neighbor was a blue-collar guy. We were able to go to games for five guilders. Now, let's be real honest, guys. B big businesses and people with money and a few people <laughs> that, that are, are blue-collar are able to attend those matches uh, nowadays. And that's a shame. It's become very corporate um, and, and it scares me a little bit what kind of future we have, what kind of legacy this generation is going to leave. Is it the greedy Neymars of the world that we're going to think of? Or, or do we still think of, of, of some great stories of guys that, that come out of the second or third division and, and, and can become a champion with Leicester City, for instance? Uh, you know, those are the great stories that I think right now are fading away and we're, we're going to a Super League. Let's be real honest. Mm. Barcelona and, and Real Madrid don't want to play on the road against Espanyol. They want to play against Man United on the road. Chelsea, PSG, Bayern Munich, Ajax, uh, Juventus. And, and you know, that's just sad that we, we see that development of the game right now. Uh, as you said, where it has changed from when I grew up. Uh, versus what we see see now because of the influx of of, of money. Look at you, you, God in England, the local businessmen owned the team. Now you got Saudi money, you got Qatari money, you got oligarchs in Russia, you got American investments. They're all and 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 that's they're, they're not looking at the soccer structure. You think the Glazers have any idea what what's happening downtown Man United the last thirty years? No, they don't. It's an investment and, and a very smart investment because they've maybe doubled their money but that's not good for the sport i think um look at the turnover of coaches you know it's all result driven right now and that also unfortunately puts 
teams like Atletico Madrid with cynical football still in a position to uh, uh, to get very far. And then we get the outliers like an Ajax or a Tottenham that had such a great run last year in Champions League. But I'm afraid that after this round, it's back to the big eight again, you know, with an exception of maybe a Leipzig or, or somebody else. Going back to to um, when you turn up then in in you know in American Samoa and you you take your first session or your first time you meet the team, what are your kind of thoughts? How are you approaching that? I had a very well. I mean, I always have an open mind, but in particular that when I started reading more on it, I, I made some decisions even before I got there. Um, uh, the decision was that I wanted the goalkeeper to gave up 31 goals, although he's uh, works for AT&T and he climbs posts in, in Seattle uh, where he works. Most of the males that want to get off the island, either go into the military or try to find a job in, in, in the United States, which is not easy. Uh, there's a lot of poverty there. Uh, there's a lot of al alcoholism there. It's a small island. As I said again, it's not easy to, to, to migrate to the United States. So a lot of young uh, people chose the military. So I, I, I brought two guys back that were in the military that, were, 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 that played uh, also in that game and the goalkeeper. I thought that was important uh, for me to use them uh, as, a, as a rallying cry, so to speak. So that was one. Two, uh, I was raised as an atheist. Um, so I, I, I needed to embrace the culture from the first day. And, and I did that by going through church on the first day with them. And, and I'm telling you, I've been, in a Notre, I've been in a Notre Dame, but I think that's the only church I've ever been in, into. Um, but I, I, I needed to do that. For me, it was a real spiritual awakening. I'm not religious. I'm not Catholic. I'm not uh, whatever. But, but those experiences for me personally were... were um, were very, very important. And for the team, it was important. And I didn't know that till probably the second day when I talked to Johnny, because that's what the passport said, Salua. And everybody was calling Johnny Jaya. So leading up to the practice, I actually walked next to, I, 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 she's a her. Um, and I said, you want to be called Jaya or, or Johnny in your passport? She said, coach, I would really love for you to call me Jaya. And I said, I will call you Jaya. And the rest of the team was very close. They heard that. And everybody was almost like a little shocked. And I looked at her and said, why are you? She said, well, we had a few Palangi coaches. And Palangi means white, white men, basically, already here. We had an Australian coach, New Zealand coach from Germany. And they always called me Johnny. You're the first coach that calls me Jaya. And that really broke the eyes and, and, and showed that I really cared about this team, their culture, uh, the Fafa Fina, that's a, 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 a third gender culture that's very much accepted there. And, and, and being Dutch helps because I have an open mind and, and I have absolutely no trepidations about any of, any of that. I ju don't judge people religiously. I don't judge people of color. I ju that's the way I was taught. That's the way the Dutch roll, basically, you know, so it all came very, very natural um but to me the key was the mental part of 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 this this team their psyche and how i could change losers basically uh, try to turn them into winners so i spent actually more time on team building than actually tactics 
you know, because I figured in, in three weeks, how much better can I make this team? Uh, technically, I made him a little bit better. I tweaked a few things, uh, sense of discipline that wasn't there, you know, I instilled, but I really instilled uh, a, a conviction, and and that's the day of the day of the game. In my last pregame talk, when I'm in front of my flipboard, and, and I think actually that's 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 in the movie, when I say you know I'll, I'll cut off my penis to play in a World Cup yeah. qualifying game, <laughs> I, I you don't see the camera response to the players, and I looked in their eyes, and I walked out, and I said to my wife who was with me, I said. I think they believe they can win, actually. And that was, to me, before the game even started, such a huge uh, triumph, personally, that I was able to, I wasn't sure if we were going to win, but I knew we were not going to lose by, by 31. I knew we were not going to lose by 20 or 10. I knew this would be a tight game. Any tight game, you can win or lose. And it was a tight game. We ended up winning because they really believed they, 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 they could. And that was such an awesome feeling i've had that four or five times before once before the mls cup when i i brought the group in i said whatever it takes whatever it takes whatever it takes uh and that's what dc united did in 99. we did whatever it took to win that game against the galaxy and it was an mls mls cup and, and i used the phrase you know what do you guys we want to win coach i go yeah everybody says that prior to the season everybody says, yeah we want to win the championship but, but refusing to lose, pushing the threshold of pain physically and, and emotionally a little bit further. And, but I'm telling you, you can do that. You can do that if you believe in that. And, and that's the course I took uh, uh, more with, with them, hardened them a little bit, uh, but being uh, approachable and, and soft and eating with them, I, I brought them together uh, in almost like an isolation. Uh, for about 10 days where they slept all together. I slept there as well on the floor. Uh, I remember Jaya after two nights coming up to me because Jaya did all the female tasks around the grounds. She cleaned up. She, you know, she did all all the chores uh, that females do. But, you know, here she is, becomes a starter, the first third gender player to play in a men's World Cup qualifying game and well Deserved, by the way. She had been on a team many times before, but never a starter. But she became not only a focal point off the, off the field, but on the field, she was she was very uh, very good as as well. So I changed certain things uh, that that made it a team, which it wasn't. Uh, it was fractured due to outside influences and also internal struggles, as it is with those smaller countries. The president and CEO and everybody wants to have a little bit of intake. I shut that all down. I had big time fights, but I protected that team, so I could could really really work on what needed to work on without any any distractions. And they took to that unbelievably. Listen, they went they went on 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 tuna boats at 6 a.m. in the morning. Half the team worked their asses off. I kicked their ass at 10 a.m. in first practice. When I came off the tuna boats uh, uh, later in the afternoon, I kicked their asses again. Kids that went to school, kids that had other jobs, that never complained. Uh, which was an awesome, awesome feeling uh, because I'd been around in MLS in the later stages where players came over just for the money, weren't highly motivated. This team was so highly motivated to to become successful and leave a little bit. I talked about legacy. You know, what 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 is important to you? Oh, we would like a younger, you know, my, I want my brother to play. 
there's no league. So we left, we left the legacy, that team. And some of them got into coaching. And some of them became part of a structure that still is a little bit in place right now where there is actually an under-9, under-11, under-12 league on the island where rugby and American football are still uh, ruled. So I was really pleased uh, pleased with that. And there was there was an, a, a section of, of, of the film where you said um, that you hadn't cried since... Um, the funeral of your, your stepdaughter but you had cried quite a lot on whilst you were over there yeah what do you think the reason for that was uh, uh well people dif- people uh, mourn differently obviously i never allowed myself to uh, i lost my dad a year later as well at, at a fairly uh, young age uh, after the accident uh, when I was still coach of DC United, uh, we parted ways. Uh, it was towards the end of the season. I became immediately a head coach for Chivas USA. I thought it was a nice change, or both my wife and I thought it would be a good change to get away from where Nicole died, which was as a freshman uh, at college, which is about half an hour outside of uh, Washington, DC, at, at, uh, in Richmond, VCU, it's called. Uh, but it, it had the counter effect. I. I self-medicated for eight, ten years. Um, I would wake up in the morning and my wife would say, you fell asleep in these clothes. You're going to go to practice. You ever take a shower? I have no idea how I got through it. I never allowed myself to be able when I got there. Literally, that first day I walked into church. And not the church itself and the religious aspect, but they sing. And I'm telling you, every member on our team has these voices that resonated and it allowed me actually to lower my heart rate and allowed me to enjoy the ride, the experience, which I had, had not done for the last 10 years for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, I got fired. I didn't want to get fired again. So I was afraid of losing games. And, and, and I, I don't know, I got caught up in this, this weird cycle and, and, and as again, being more spiritual there getting in touch with myself, but also my surroundings and look at these beautiful people. And, and uh, it, yeah, that, that really, finally, I got a sense of normalcy. Um, and that allowed me to, 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 to cry, to cry in front of people. I mean, God, my dad taught me never to do that. Uh, that's another thing. You're, you're shaped by your, your, your upbringing, obviously. My dad was a tough guy. And you provide, and uh, you don't cry, and you don't show weaknesses, and you know, that was a little bit like me. I was that, like as a player as well. You know, Cruyff would always instruct me to when I get touched, you kick the next guy. So I was, the, I had to be the physical and the mental tough guy throughout my career and also my coaching career. Uh, be a leader, you know, of men. Uh, <laughs> every team you go into, your staff, the team, you talk about forty people, you get to lead each and every day. And that, that took so much energy for me after my daughter died that I, I, I didn't allow myself to do anything else except just continue to march on with, with blinders, quite frankly. And there's a reason now I look back, I was fired after 10 games at Chivas um, for the reason I just mentioned. I, I, I would sleep in the same clothes for two or three days, go to practice. I can't even recall what kind of sessions? I know we were in Mexico, and, and, and 
at preseason and I learned another language, which I did as well on top of that. I think I, I just forced myself not to mourn um, and, and just being among beautiful people, pure people uh, that love each other and, and, and where the dying culture is also a little bit different. Um, as much as they, they, they mourn people, they also talk about, which is interesting, after the first service, somebody talked about universal truths. And universal truths, yeah, you know, which sounds maybe a little bit more <laughs> dogmatic, um, because I questioned why. I questioned God, although I'm not religious. I, I blamed God, you know, for 10 years or eight years uh, without being religious, which is obviously re ridiculous. But universal truth is that things happen out of your control, um, including young people dying, like my, my, my stepdaughter, with all of that pragmatism and, 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 and um, being very emotional about everything that they approach allowed me to become normal and, and emotional again and allowed me to cry not once, but, but several times, spontaneously sometimes, uh, with the group sometimes. Uh, it was an awesome feeling and, and, and I was able to make the next step in my in my life because I I, I was going into a spiral that was not a very healthy one, uh, quite frankly. And in terms of sort of your your approach to to that type of thing following that experience, do you think that that's that's changed you like longer term? Yeah, it, it does. The the, the 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 next job I actually got was. Uh, and, 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 and I chose that job. Paul, Paul Mariner um, and Stevie Nick are very good friends of mine. They coached the New England Revolution for many years. Stevie Nick, the great Liverpool legend, Paul Mariner, you know. Uh, and, and Paul uh, was the GM at Toronto FC. And, and they needed an, an academy director to start an academy from scratch. And, and I, when I went back from American Samoa, I said, I, I don't want to be a head coach anymore and get, get back into just winning i want to develop i want to take precious stones and 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 and, and turn them into diamonds if i can and, and and steal my philosophy on a club of daring technical attacking football you know which i did and and that was that was great actually i was able to follow that up after american samoa when paul mariner reached out to me and i i knew that education was more important i started doing more coaching courses in 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 uh, in the us uh, i went back to coaching one more time as a head coach for the tampa bay uh, rowdies um which also didn't last very very uh, very long and and that made me made me understand that i didn't want to be on the highest level anymore um and that's when i pivoted to what else can i do i speak my languages perfectly i'm pretty analytic I know my data, I've been a scout, head coach, academy director, grassroots level, high school, college, MLS. Uh, I could maybe make a good pundit. And, you know, I was very fortunate one day to fill in for somebody uh, and did a good job. Uh, and here we are six years later. I'm, a, I'm the number one guy for CBS Sports. And I'm one of, you know, many at, at, at um be in Sports USA with Phil Shane and, and, and Ray Hudson and Bobo Vieri. And I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. 
And then my final question would be, Thomas, have you have you been back to American Samoa since since that experience? No, but I might. And if everything pans out well, uh, there could be a moment where hopefully a movie will be released, a book <laughs> is released, and I might actually, which they've asked me, I've not said yes yet, yet, and now the pandemic has changed that. Well, to be real honest with you, I, I said pretty much yes, but it had to make sense uh, that I would take them to the next qualifying phase, which would have been in, in, in August, September. Uh, in a different format so the chances i have not been back since but the chances i might be going back which actually not too many people know um are are not 100 percent, but are pretty pretty big for the reason that it was one of my most endearing and enjoyable experiences in my my coaching life and my personal life um you know so yeah that 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 would be pretty cool if somewhere in the fall all these things fassbender playing me book coming <laughs> out and, and going back to american samoa but the what the book is not all just about american samoa the movie obviously is with a brilliant director in, in taika watiti um oscar winner also now guy again that's doing the next star wars pretty cool that uh, guy that wins an oscar did Thor and now he's doing Star Wars. His next movie is a soccer movie. How, how cool is that? Mm. I, I... Welcome back. You're listening to Man Marking. My name is Danny Reed, and I am still joined by Anthony Edward Olson and Ryan Pulford. Ryan, have you got a middle name actually? Yeah, Anthony. Is it? Yeah. Is it actually? Yeah. Full come full circle. Rap. Okay. To wipe wow. about the beats for the for the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah you do. Yeah. You do. Sat here with a, a cap and headphones on at the moment. I yeah. feel like um we're on like a Radio One program at like <laughs> Wednesday evening or something. Something that I would go up to Five on. in the booth. Yeah. Or two. I would turn it on and go, I'm not cool enough for this. I'm putting it back on to heart or something. Smooth. Smooth classic FM. Mm. Anyway. Like Jordan Slew. Yeah, Jordan Sleuth. Let's move on. Let's move on. That was, um, I'm sure you'd agree, an incredibly <laughs> amazing interview with, with Thomas Rongen. As Ryan said before, and we obviously we sat there and we spoke to him for the evening. And when we get these people on, we often kind of, you really hope that they are the people that you kind of project onto them from their kind of public persona. And Thomas was was everything and more than, than we thought he was going to be it's just absolutely unreal so yeah that was one of the one of the most enjoyable evenings that we've had doing this podcast um and we kind of spoke about it before and but we all kind of came to thomas and knew, knew about him learned about him through the film next goal wins which was about the american samoan team and his journey with them and finding their first victory and and you and i have been big fans of the film for a long time do you want to kind of Give the listeners a little bit of kind of insight into what that film sort of meant for you. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, you told me about the film. I did. Um, often you tell me about films and I don't really take a lot of notice for a while and then I watched it. But when I watched it, I actually watched it with my dad. Um, and the, I think the thing you take away from it is that like pretty much anything, you can make anything happen if you if you work hard enough and like smart enough at it as well. Yeah. The scene that sticks with me all the time is when it's absolutely chucking it down with rain and he's teaching him how to slide tackle. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, 
what I think at the time we were coaching a kids team as well, weren't we? And, yeah. and I was I was watching. I was like, why do you have to do that? I was like. You, it, it reminded me of that so Pep Guardiola thing where he said he didn't teach tackles. Yeah, I think well, maybe he should. It's so <laughs> what you can achieve? So basic. Fun it looks. So basic, and it, like he's kicking every single ball on the sideline, and you add all, in, all these other. They become characters, don't they? But they're yeah, yeah. real life stories, yeah. and you know, Nicky Salapo and the, the first transgender player to play. And yeah. I, unfortunately, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Um, and it's just like you're inspired. You are inspired, yeah. and and at the end of the film, you you're sitting there, and I'm trying to like not shed a tear in front of me dad. Mm-hmm. My dad's giving it one of them. Got a good film this, like, yeah. And, it, and that was from a guy who's I mean, he follows football, but doesn't really like take a, a you know a huge interest in it, and it's not as much as I do. And like, yeah, just taking stuff away from that, and you're looking at it and going, what a guy, what a guy this is. Yeah. And you want like the next one, you want them to like follow him again, and again, and again. And you're like, oh, I wonder if they'll get to the World Cup. Yeah, like, it wasn't even like close. It wasn't even about that. Was <laughs> it wasn't it? even close to no. the World Cup, and you're like. Oh. And I suppose that's what's really good about the film is that you think oh, I want to see more of this, but the, that exact portion of the, their time, both in the team's life and in the player's life, and it, it always just happened to just meet up and line up and all happen at that exact moment. And they just happened to be people making a film at the time that they caught it. And I think the film that they made was not the film that they were intending to make. And just that pure magic just happened. A Jaya was the is the, yeah, the transgender player. Yeah, play. I think it's I, I, it's it's incredible. It, yeah, it's, and it just you look at those players, and you're like, you've got your life back now. Mm. And especially for the goalkeeper. And you're yeah, like, yeah. You're not gonna go home and play on the PlayStation to try and beat Australia again. Yeah. And you're like, and I actually heard you know over like. Um, angles on that Australia victory someone was saying you know well, that's what a professional team does if, if it's there and it's a World Cup qualifying yeah, game, yeah, yeah. go and win and stick as many goals past them as you can and you're like yeah but come on and then you're like well that's where professional football works mm. just looking at you going just so happy when they won that I game know. you're like oh it's like a, you could see the weight are just gone yeah. all gone yeah completely. absolutely and Ryan you you obviously came to this film a little bit later than us yeah. but enjoyed it all the same yeah, it had the same impact on me as it did on you boys. And what I liked about it is when he, when he sort of told the story in our interview about himself as a player, he was never the greatest player. He went no. to America quite young, but he played with a lot of his heroes and some unbelievable. But wasn't he playing with Cruyff at one point mm. and players like Beckham that? Beckenbauer. And what he said was, he he knew he wasn't as good as them, but he was fit and he was strong and he could run. And I think that kind of epitomised how he then coached these lads because all of a sudden he had a group of lads with no one who was a superstar, no one who was particularly great in the football world. But he said, if you give all, you give your heart, you'll get a reward that I got. And it almost did like three circle in his whole life. Yeah. That all of a sudden he'd gone from being probably the sort of the, the least talented on the football pitch to then coaching a bunch of lads where even in, at his age he was probably the most talented, wasn't yeah. he? And it was kind of like, if you show me heart and desire... And I don't think he went there with any expectation for that to happen. No. That's what's beautiful about it, the way it just naturally and organically evolved to, like, where they're in the sea and they're just playing and they're yeah. bonding and you're just looking at it going, these would run through a brick wall for each other. They yeah. didn't even care about it probably three weeks ago. It was just sort of like something you did because you're on a small island where you might as well, do, you might as well play football. But and then they were very the proud it, to it represent their island, but they just had no expectation of being able to actually do exactly, anything. Exactly, yeah. And you, it was it turned into an absolute brotherhood, didn't it? It mm. was just incredible to watch them grow and, and grow as footballers as well, to be yeah. fair to them. They, they, they became a little bit more tactically astute. They got fitter, they got stronger. And it, oh, it's just a, such a heartwarming film, but again, very 
real. Like you, you get football films that are like, like goal or something like that, where you know <laughs> it's scripted, but watching this and knowing that actually happened, then people exist. Yeah. They, they did that, and they and you don't feel like together. anybody was prompted into saying anything that was said or doing anything that was said. It was just all happened well, say organically. What are the camera angles and stuff they're taken from afar, aren't they? They're, yeah. they're just watching what naturally played out. I don't think at any point Ronion just said. Oh, I want to do a side tackle thing because it looks good on camera. I think he thought these boys need to know how to tackle. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to do it in a fun way because they're all laughing and joking. Yeah. Aren't I they? feel like he saw what the weather was like. He probably thought this pitch is probably quite difficult for us to play exactly, on right now. Yeah. So what can we do instead? Rather than going, it's not training, it's not on today, lads. Yeah, he just went right. We're just sliding into one another. For and a it bit. was a great lesson into like, obviously we explore mental health and stuff. And there's a, a very poignant moment which I'm not going to ruin if anyone hasn't watched it where he shares something from his personal life. And I think the players look and respect them for it, and there's almost like a, a change in, change in the attitude at that point. I thought it was a big moment in the film where yeah. he shares, and they kind of go, "Actually, this guy's serious. He does care about us and yeah. what we do." And, you and know I what? think I'm going to give it a hundred percent. The island and the people there, and the way of life, and the way they kind of got through things had a big impact. I think on the way he was dealing with his grief oh, and yeah. stuff as well. He was very appreciative of their culture the whole time. He kind of said, "This is my way of doing things. So if you don't like it, then I'll go." But equally, what what you respect, I respect. Yeah, which I thought was just just beautiful, like human element. Oh, to the massively. Film. Yeah, and you asked me at the beginning, Ant, and that when I went to see the film, I was in uni, and I was actually meant to be going. So the cinema by our our student digs in in third year of uni was. Uh, an Odeon that used to do them Monday night on a Monday night they'd show an old film so like Scarface or Back to the Future or that type of thing and the film that was on that week was Pulp Fiction so I was like oh I'm definitely going to go down and it was like £4.10 or something and you could go and watch the, the old film so I walked down to the cinema and I'd gone in to get a ticket and he said it's sold out you can't, can't go and see it and I was like oh. I've already walked down here on Monday night at like half eight and I was like what else is on and they said oh there's a film called Next Goal Wins on and I'd never heard of it. And I was like, all right, what's that? And they were like, it's a football film. And I was like, oh, go on, I'll just go and see that then. So I bought this ticket and I've gone in the cinema. And there's literally me and these two other guys about three rows in front of me. There's nobody else in there. And I'm watching this film. And it must be 2014, I think it was, when it came out. So I was sat there watching this film. And like, I had no expectation to know what was about, about to watch or anything. And as you said, there was part of it where I was like, I was like, I'm in tears watching it. Just both. Not just like sadness, but just like joy, like at watching it. And when the when the when the goal that, that that wins them the game goes in, genuinely, I'm not messing. The two fellas who were in front of me, I mean, we we were up as if we were at the match. <laughs> Get in there, because because we had no idea. We were like, I have no idea if that this is because you think the same film could have played out and they could have not won the game, yeah. And it would have been wouldn't have made it any less good of a film. It would have just a slightly different ending to the film. But it was it was mad. I was sat there in this in the cinema in Manchester, a thirty on a Monday night, with these two <laughs> random fellas who I'd never met before, and all of us are up giving it giving it loads. We've just got to hold on now, lads. These don't want it open. It was absolutely unreal. So I think, like I always took that. I mean, I've watched the film two or three times since then, and I, I I've taken like the same things that you guys took from it. But I just really liked that moment that I had in the cinema, where. I got so wrapped up in it and like so into it that, that it caused that reaction, which is exactly what that film's all about. Yeah. Exactly what that film represents is that like purity of football, the beauty of football, and the way 
that it makes you feel and the way that it can impact on your life. I think that was just everything that we've spoken about over the last few months doing this podcast just wrapped up in that film in, in so many different ways. Mm. Um, unless you've got any other thoughts, fellas, I'll, I'll wrap us up. We have got something quite special actually to play you now, which is um, a short clip from James Montague, who wrote the book 31-0, which was about the uh, Australia-American Samoa game, which kind of sort of gave the American Samoa team that their kind of started the journey yeah yeah I think it kind of raised their profile for people in terms of them being in air quotes the worst team in the world wasn't it yeah and James Montague followed that story and he wrote the book 31-0 which was a lot of it's about how teams at that level qualify for the World Cup or attempt to qualify for the World Cup and he was at that game wasn't he he was at the final game that that, that they won and, and, and you DM'd him on Twitter, didn't you, Anton, and asked some questions of, of that experience for him so that he would be able to tell us kind of firsthand what it was like for somebody being there. Yeah, I did, and it, it came up because I was listening to something else that, that James was on, and I was like, you're like one of 20-ish people who've seen this. Mm. And I know he went for the book and, and stuff, and I was like, this is, you've stumbled on absolute gold here. Yeah. And, he, and he, he touches on it in, in, the, in the stuff you're about to listen to, how, how amazing it was. Yeah. And, he uh, calls it, doesn't it, the purest moment he's ever yeah. seen in football. And he's someone who's, for various different guises, has, has followed football professionally and personally, like his whole life, basically. Yeah, and I just think, what better to listen to than someone who was there? Yeah. I just, I, it's such a rarity. And I yeah. know there were, you could probably find others, but I was like, this is such an easy access. I was like, hang on, his, his DMs are open. I was like... <laughs> We love a day. We love an open DM. She just ask him. She yeah. says, and, like, and he came back, and it's 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 really good. Yeah, it was very kind of him to do so. So very appreciative for him for him giving up his time and just recording a little yeah. little little sort of six or seven minute clip for us. Um, and then after that, you'll obviously be passed over back to Thomas Rongan for his for his quick fire, which we're as I'm sure you'll you'll find out very inter- very interesting. <laughs> we actually I think got a shout for Jack Grealish in there as well, which is a, which is an achievement for me. Um, but yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us, lads. Edward, Anthony. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. People are going, but isn't one of them called Anthony? Ah, <laughs> crazy. You've been listening to Man Marking. As usual, you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And uh, you can use the hashtag, or you should use the hashtag, where's mm. the talking lads? And as we said at the beginning of the show, if you do want to get some more interesting extra content from us, then you can find that via our Patreon, which is just $2.99 a month. Just go to Patreon and search Man Marking Podcast. We'll see you for our next episode, which is on Friday, which is another episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. And then after that, we'll be concluding this series with Tramir Owners, Mark and Nicola Palios. You've been listening to Man Marking. Thanks for, thanks for being with us. And we'll now pass you over to James Montagin. How, why did you pick that match to attend? <clears throat> um, well, it wasn't really the match I chose. It was I was writing a book at the time called 31-0 on the road with football's outsiders. And I'd always wanted to write a book that kind of told the story of World Cup qualification through the kind of the eyes of the of the of the worst teams in the world, you know, uh, not out of any I didn't want to take the piss out of anybody. I wanted to I loved the small teams. I loved the underdogs and I loved the spirit of players and teams and coaches that kind of got knocked down and got back up again. And to me, the ultimate underdog that encapsulated that was the American Samoa team that lost 31-0 
to to Australia in 2001 and ever since I saw that result I you know I felt kind of I don't know I think a lot of people had that kind of kinship in some ways with you know people who who lost heavily and had to get on with it you know because that's how that's how I play sport every time I've been a goalkeeper I've I've conceded an absolute shitload of goals I don't think I've ever won a football I think I won one football match in my entire life so, you know, I felt a connection to, to Nicky Salapu, the goalkeeper. And if I was going to write a book called 31-0, I had to go to Samoa, as it turned out, not American Samoa. I found out that the um, pre-qualification tournament was taking place in November 2011. And I, um, yeah, managed to make, make my way there. What was the journey like to get there? Um... <laughs> it was I mean it was insane actually because I just I was I knew I had to so the difficult thing with writing a book like 31 nil is that you have to be somewhere every international break and when you're doing when you're following kind of the the, the rules the, the early stages of the World Cup qualification um kind of kind of route or the game weeks you could end up all over the place so I was actually in Rwanda doing a chapter on uh, Rwanda and Eritrea because they they had a kind of pre-qualification game against each other, which Rwanda won. And there was, a, there was an amazing story about the Eritrean players because they'd often um, abscond as soon as they got out of the country because Eritrea is quite a difficult place to live. So from there, I had to fly back to... I think I back, fly, flew to Belgium and then Belgium to London, then London to Sydney... Sydney to Wellington or Auckland, I can't remember, and then to to Samoa from there. So it was it was an absolutely insane journey. And I remember I was landing the day of the game, and I got there and I didn't realise I'd crossed the international date line. I travelled so far, I travelled I'd crossed the international date line and I'd got there a day earlier. So I had I had a day more. I, I gained a day. I was given this free day. And what's interesting is that. A few weeks after uh, that tournament, I think it was in 2011, um, uh, uh, Samoa decided to change the American uh, the, the 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 international dateline to be on the other side of it. So everybody who had a birthday on the 31st December uh, didn't have a birthday that day. I remember. Uh, what was the atmosphere like? I mean, there wasn't many people at the JS Blatter Stadium complex. I can tell you that. I mean, there was about 20 people. Um, if that, and there was a kind of, there were a few people there. It was a bit, there was a laughing, a bit of a mocking kind of atmosphere amongst those people, I suppose. But I didn't pay much attention to them because I was, you know, very much with Thomas and 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 the the the, the kind of team that were on the bench because there, although there was a dressing room there, everything took place on the side of the pitch. That's where the dugout was, which was like a kind of blue canvas tent. That's where. Uh, Rongan gave his team talk and that's where, uh, you know, I was allowed to stand and record everything that happened. So I was standing pitch side when it all happened and it didn't matter to me what the atmosphere was that there weren't many fans there. What was important to me was the reaction of the players because, you know, as this game progresses, and this is the first game that I've seen, um, 
it becomes very clear that something special might happen because they're not concede they're not they're not fifteen nil down at half time. I mean they they've gone ahead one nil, which I think was the first time they'd ever even gone ahead in a game. So after that it was just there was tension, excitement, um and you know, I got that all from the players and from, from Rongan himself and and as the second half progressed, you know, the other people there picked up on it as well and they realised that yeah, we we could be seeing some history here. The winning goal. Um, <laughs> I think it was Sean Luani who scored it. If I, I have to check that, but it, it was a while ago. But I think it was him. I mean, at at first, I was I thought the goalkeeper had killed him because he scores the se- the winning goal is essentially the second goal. They go two nil up. I mean, Tongas get one back, and it's a Gold mouth stra- uh, scramble, but they they managed to hold off. But the winning goal, he's through on goal. He kind of clips it over the goalkeeper, and the, the goalkeeper just completely wipes him out. And he's laying on the floor motionless. So people are kind of celebrating, but they're not sure if if he's if he's in a bit of a bad way. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he ends up in the NFL draft a couple of seasons later for for the um, Oakland Raiders as well. But I mean, he was quite. a... You know, he was a young kid then, so he hadn't, he hadn't kind of bulked out. But, yeah, the winning goal was that. But when the winning moment, um, and I was lucky enough that I, I was recording it because I was doing a, a BBC World Service story. So I had had my, my radio recorder. And I listened back to it recently. And every time I listen back to the footage that I recorded then, even though it was nine years ago, it's just some of the most beautiful sound I'd ever recorded. It's just, it's so pure. And... There's a moment where the whistle blows and they're not sure, is it is that it? Is he blown for a corner? Is that the end of the game? And then then it's clear it's the end of the game. And it's yes, yes. You know, you hear Rongan going and then it's just pandemonium. And there's tears. You know, Nicky Salapu's crying. He's, this is, you know, redemption. And I know that's like a phrase often used in kind of American sports films, but it was it was incredible. It was like watching a Hollywood movie in real time, watching this guy's demons being lifted from him, watching the man of the match performance by a transgender player, the first transgender player in a World Cup qualifier, watching Thomas Rongen, who's, you know, turned up and knocked this this team into shape effectively you know carrying his own demons into this tournament as well and his own baggage and almost having his own kind of religious religious style epiphany as this as this pro, as this tournament progresses it was the single greatest moment i think i've ever seen in football it it certainly was the single purest moment i've ever seen in football i can't remember what the equivalent of Bovril was. I remember it was hot as fuck, so it was um, it was probably water. Um, I can't remember. Did I eat anything there? I don't. I don't recall. I don't recall what the equivalent is of. of yeah, I mean, I remember the Samoan beer was quite nice, but I don't remember. I wasn't at the game, but yeah, I don't remember what there was. I mean, th- there were so few people there. There was th- no one's going to be selling snacks because you. T- I mean, it'd be impossible to make a profit. Question one, if you would have been able to, would you have come out of retirement to play for the America Samoa team? Absolutely. <laughs> would you have got in the starting 11? I would have been iconic. I would have been, like <laughs> I would have been the soccer version of The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Currently, who is your favourite player to watch? Uh, well, in all time? 
No, just someone who plays right now. Oh, somebody that 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 that, that plays now. Yeah. Um, I I don't want to go with Messi and Ronaldo. They're they're on a different, a, a different, different scale. Basically, you know, I I I I, I like. The new version of a number eight in in the way. Sorry, look at Liverpool right now. You know, I mean, the the, the, the traditional number tens are dying out. So Henderson, uh, Vede Valverde, this young kid at Real Madrid can go box to box, can score goals, can tackle on 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 on, on the midfield line too. Uh, I've got incredible, not because he's Dutch, but what Virgil van Dijk is doing, single-handedly changing the centre back role. Uh, you know, doesn't have to foul, rarely gets taken on, similar to what Frank Reichardt did for Ajax for a while and when they would start out of a 4-3-3 but morphed into a 3-4-3 and he would step into midfield because he was such a great passer off the ball and when they turned over, they could press, they would stay with, with, with four midfield, if not, he would just drop and become the, the, the center back again. So I, I love the way the game is evolving in, 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 in midfield. Um, you know, players that, uh, you know, Bruno Fernandes, I know they're not big, big, big names, but I got just an incredible amount of, of, of um, um, sympathy. I, I played a little bit in that position there, and I know what it's required. These guys have skill sets right now. Uh, they're specialists in, in two or three positions. They can play the six equally as well as the eight, and at times even the ten. Which is, you know, Crows is, is still to be beautiful to watch his, his, his intelligence. So, then again, Messi's brilliant, uh, Ronaldo brilliant. But underneath that group, uh, there's quite a large. I, I, leave, I love somebody like Odegaard. And we have La Liga would be in. This kid, Odegaard, man, is brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Uh, great. I, I love really intelligent players. But that can also do some of the dirty work at times. Can play make at times. Can make other players better at times. And I think those are those are key players in 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 midfield. The Frankie de Young, uh, I love that. the lift. What he brings as, as a centre back at that young age, that maturity, that strength in the air, uh, the hard tackle, uh, but not cynical and and, and, and things like that. Yeah, that. Those are players I I enjoy. You were when you were describing the the first player that came into my mind weirdly when you were talking there was Jack Grealish who plays for yeah, Aston Villa. Yeah. He, he's he's one of my favourite players. He's just so um so graceful on the ball, but also yep. can mix it if needs be. Yep, yeah, that's the, that's the new brand of of midfielders now, you know. Uh, and who do you think will win a World Cup first, the Netherlands or the USA? Um, I gotta go with um, with the USA. It sounds maybe crazy, but I really feel at home in 2026 that the U.S. with this crop, they will all be in their prime. Uh, you go to Weston McKinney, you go to John Brooks, you go to even Yetlin to a certain extent. You look at Zach Steffen that starts in the Bundesliga every game as a goalkeeper, 23. These guys are all early 20s. Uh, the kid that starts for RB Leipzig, one of the best teams in... in, in oh, Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams. He's a brilliant footballer. He's excellent, him, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, really good. You look at Josh Sargent, that word of brain, and coming off the bench or starting right now. You look at Gio, Gio Reyna. Fucking what a great assist he had on, on in the Champions League for, 
for 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 Dortmund coming up again, 17 years old. Born in but, England as well. Huh? Born in England. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> His dad, Claudio, was a good yeah, player. Yeah, Claudio was a great, great, yeah. great player without without a doubt. So I think the chances for U.S. and home home soil it sounds very crazy when they're when they're all in their prime, Pulisic including in that, and there's four or five other very good under twenty players that now also play abroad. You can even put Way in there that was injured for Lyon, but normally would be a starter at young age already. Uh, got a sniff at PSG. Uh, I know they're they're not on paper Frankie the Young, but but one thing I enjoyed about the American player. Uh, sort of all the pitfalls we had when 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 I was with the under twenty ones, their appetite to want to succeed, the appetite to bring it on. Uh, Michael Bradley was brilliant at, at doing that. Josie Altador as well, you know, because they still feel they're not respected throughout the world. It's a great driving force. You put that mentality, which is always great. Their discipline, and now we're sort of producing technical and tactical players that are a lot better than what we used to They're playing in big leagues in the world uh maybe they can make a run like germany you know did germany with that young team at klinsman in two or six i think they came in third or fourth yeah i i, I actually think that that yeah i picked the us most people probably say i'm i'm crazy but yeah i will next question uh for me thomas is Obviously, um, American stadiums, they're, they're unbelievable, but it, it can be quite commercial and, and sanitised at times. Being an Ajax fan growing up and arguably one of the craziest set of fans with the best atmospheres in the world, what was your reaction when you, you first played and coached in the States and in the stadiums? Yeah, in, in, interesting. I mean, yeah, you've got a giant stadium. And, and back in the NESL days, late 70s, uh, the New York Cosmos, owned by the Water Brother Communications, was the draw. It was not the Yankees, it was not the Giants or the Jets, no, it was was, was the Harlem Globetrotters of soccer uh, with Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, Kinalia, Bogajevic, uh, you know, the list goes on of on Jan Neskens, great players, Pele obviously, uh, that played for, for, for the Cosmos, but you played on turf. And now you talk about 78, 79, 80, uh, not the turf you see right now. I mean, you know, that would, would cut. That was the big issue for most of the foreigners. Cruyff said the games are fairly easy when it's a natural grass. The traveling is killing me, and the artificial turf is, is, is killing me. But I love walking to Giant Stadium and playing in front of 80,000 people. You know, it was packed. Seattle, when you had, uh, uh, you had mostly uh, English players in, in Seattle. Hudson, uh, being one of them, was a brilliant player, by the way. Um, you know, 50,000 people in, in Seattle. There's a reason why Seattle still draws unbelievable in MLS because the old NESL laid the foundation in some of those those cities for these MLS teams to be successful. And there's a reason why they're adopting the NESL nicknames or last names, Seattle Sounders. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, very, very true. I mean, you like to see grass throughout. That's not going to happen uh, in some cases because of climatic uh, conditions. Uh, Vancouver. Toronto is tough, guys, you know, when, when there's snow and ice and whatever. But on turf, you can still play under those uh, circumstances. But the league slowly is building their soccer-specific stadiums uh, with all natural grass in, in, in mind. So that those are big, big steps forward versus when we first came here. And most of the league was artificial turf. What's your favorite part of the U.S., Thomas? 
it's it's complexity, um, good and bad. You know, I'm, I'm politically right now, uh, you know, you got to shake your head a little bit. Uh, there's still things in all countries, but particularly here, that that, that right now scares me a little bit. The way the way my mom used to say that's how it happened in uh, in Germany. <laughs> that kind of rhetoric. Uh, but saying yeah. that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I love the beach. Uh, American people are, are, are mostly very positive, love sports, great enthusiasm for, for sports, put their athletes on, on, you know, on pinnacles and they're not worship, but, but it's, it's always a positive slant. And I go back to ne- Netherlands, it's so cynical at times, you know, England too. I read some of the reports, it's always, you know, somebody getting away from what I think is, is, is important, uh, all the external things that have become important for the press to, to write about, not just to pure the game itself. That's why I respect the four or five writers that really write about tactics only. You know, I love, I, I, I love that. Uh, the sensationalism-driven press is, is, is killing us uh, a little bit and, and killing players and, and, and clubs for that matter. And have become, let's face it, very important uh, functions uh, within within clubs. Press can kill a coach. Press can kill a player. Um, some correctly, but in most cases, maybe maybe wrongly so. So uh, America is, from that standpoint, really healthy in, in regards to to sports. I love other sports. I mean, I I watched the Lakers with Magic Johnson and Abdul Karim Jabbar. I was in Chicago the first two years with Michael Jordan. Uh, I was in, in, in Boston, you know, watching Larry Bird. I went to the Dodgers uh, Stadium, watch baseball. I go to the Heat games and see Shaq play. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why Bale and those guys are enamored by the U.S., they can play golf, they love other sports. That's why they come over here in preseason or can hang out with Steph Curry and Neymar, you know, because they like hoops. And there's a lot of great, uh, great things about this this country. And, and, and every state is its own country. I've, I've gone cross country now three times. I want to do it again. I've done Route 66. And every time I do it again, I, I, I either spend a night in New Orleans or take the back roads and I end up in flipping South Dakota. Before I know it, I'm, I'm watching the four presidents, you know, the, the uh, in the mountains. And it's this country is, is young. Uh, you don't get the same architectural uh, as you see in, in, in Amsterdam, but it has incredible beauty as, as 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 well nfl do you watch nfl and if so who would be your team um i i i, I have to go with the new england patriots not because they've been successful but <laughs> um i was able to watch the games in in the owner's box the owner owned both the patriots and and the new england revolution i coached it for two years and oh, it's amazing. Pretty, pretty amazing to go to foxborough watch a football game because those fans they die for their team you know they're hardened and they're they're blue collar and they're behind their team and obviously they've been very successful and i was very uh, lucky to be able to get close to coaches that were there bill parcells who's still considered one of the best coaches that allowed me to come to his practices that taught me uh 
how to change actually my assistant coach and how to pick my assistant coaches differently, which is you know, I've learned from other sports. I've learned from the Zen master, the triangular op- offense with the Chicago Bulls, you know, and you can yeah. you can take that to to um, uh, to, to to football, obviously, because there's all these natural triangles uh, throughout the uh, throughout the field. I, I've looked at hockey games in particular teams that forecheck like motherfuckers when it turns the puck turns over. These guys just hammer people into fucking boards. And you can, hey, you know, I, I like, as I said again, uh, which is really total football, but taking it a step further, um, you know, regaining possession of the ball as quickly as possible, as far away from your goal, which means you're playing with a lot of acres behind you, obviously, right? You're on midfield line with risk. Uh, but, but, but I learned from hockey a little bit how to trap a puck and how, you know, and you can, how to trap a ball, actually, and using the sideline as your you know, as your friend, because they can't go any further. So making play predictable and, and having the first guy, I don't care who it was, the left fullback, the fucking right winger, whoever's closest, just go. And the second one goes and the, and the third one goes. We play 1v1 in the back. And it's nice when when other sports translation works in soccer a little bit, you know, you can take little little things of, uh, of, of that as well. I've read more books in the last 10 years of other sports of coaches, Coach K, Again, Zen Master, obviously, um, Riley, uh, you know, and I learned a lot of, because, you know what, psychology, I think in the modern game, the coach that can reach out play, reach out to players and really push their buttons, um, that's the guy that's going to be successful. And that's why I think Lampard could be successful, because I think he's able to, to, to do that with, uh, with, with players, that guys really, like a Jurgen Klopp, you know, uh, the Mourinho's are, are dying out right now, throwing your own players under the fucking bus. That, that worked 10 years ago, but the modern players are not going to stand for that. And, and, and the ability to learn from other sports and look at those great coaches and look at their applied psychology, the mental part of the game, where I think we still can make some strides, uh, more so than all the other you know, technical, tactical, and, 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 and physical. That includes data analysis, um, which you see more and more now clubs uh, uh, embracing as well. Uh, that's the future. And coaches that are younger and know technology and know how to deal with people and make them better are going to be successful guys, smart guys. Watching Bill oh, Belichick at the Patriots, I'm sure you learned how to defend as well. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I used to pick my assistant coaches based on you know, knowledge and based most of the time because I knew them, they were friends or whatever, and loyalty, the kind of stuff. But 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 Belichick said to me, because he blows a whistle, he stands on the side, blows a whistle, all of a sudden you get these six, seven groups just and every group's got two coaches. And I go, yeah, get my linemen together, get my quarterbacks there, and then whoop, they come back together again. And he goes, what do you get as assistant coaches? I go, well, whatever. Don't you have a defender teaching the defenders? Don't you have a midfielder, former midfielder? So I started actually bringing in my three assistants was one was a defender, one was a midfielder four, because I used to teach Josie Altador how to fucking turn somebody. Well, he said to me one day, coach, you're a defender, you know, what do you, <laughs> you know, in a, in a nice way. Um, so I learned from other sports also how to, how to fill in your staff. I, I was one of the first ones that, that, that threw uh, Parcells and Belichick about a uh, uh, nutritionist. I had a nutritionist go with every player into a store Tell them to how to read labels and stuff like that, you know, because the NFL is far ahead of analysis. Fuck, Belichick took me in his room. 
hundreds of thousands of tapes. These guys would sleep there, you know, overnight. Tapes and breaking stuff down. Fuck, I, I had a, I had a videographer. It took me three days to get a tape back from him, you know, from your opponent. And that's where I, I made more strides. It became way more effective in, in my work based on what I saw and, and talked to people in other sports. Because soccer is still a little bit... Fuck, I remember the first time I brought a, but back then a psychologist in the locker room. The guys almost fucking killed me. What do you mean? I gotta, I gotta talk to a guy. Fuck off, coach. <laughs> you, know, you know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, the team that, that that we support, Thomas, is called uh, Tramir Rovers, uh, which is our local team. Yeah. We were wondering if you'd ever heard of us. Oh fuck yeah, Tramir Rovers, absolutely. There was a big tournament in, um, um, and it was run by. Um, Dave A.S. And, and it was played outside of the Olympic Stadium at about six or seven fields. And a lot of English teams would come. This is when I grew up. And that tournament doesn't exist anymore. And Tremor Rovers was one of the teams that went there four or five consecutive years and actually did quite well. Good out of group play and, and things like that. And then they end up you know, facing an Ajax or a Chelsea or, or Menu or whatever. You know, it, was a big, it was a big youth tournament. That's it. That's, That's great for us, <laughs> Yes, you guys were kick, kick, you guys were kicking butt in the sixties and early seventies. We've noticed you wear a lot of bow ties, Thomas. Can you talk us through your favorite one? Um, my favorite ones have become the ones that go to charity. I uh, I go out literally into the community. I get this this Guatemalan guy that has a little shop. You know what? Doesn't make a lot of money. Uh, and he gives um, uh, two dollars of a bow tie to this orphanage in, in Guatemala. And he makes his bow ties out of wood. So I've got a lot of wood bow ties. Another guy makes uh, uh, bow ties out of old, you guys don't even know about this, old albums. You know, the, the, the albums you used to play on a... On a, on a oh, yeah. Uh, like vinyls. Uh, the vinyls, exactly. He makes out of, out of vinyls. And another guy uh, makes, makes, him, makes bow ties out of jeans. And somehow, you know, and 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 they all go back to uh, to to good ones. So I I I, I got one uh, uh, bow tie with the poop emoji on it, which is a wooden <laughs> bow tie from the guy from Guatemala. That's probably my favorite one. Life over here, it's tough. It's very tough. If you don't work, you can't pay the bills. So to go back, it's a big sacrifice. This tournament is way important for me. This is like uh, something that I was dreaming about, you know. I love my family very much. And this is the chance for me to make them proud. For him, it's all about showing the world that this country, not only himself, but that a team can do something, that we can win a game, that we aren't losers. Ah!